What we mean by relational practice is experiencing ourselves within a space of warmth and care and support that's not just generated on our own, but that's coming from a kind of ecology of connection, like a social ecology of connection with others. And so from various contemplative cultures and traditions, we can see examples of this. Attachment theory and also other perspectives from social psychology and developmental psychology suggest, like, hey, this is really important. We are really dependent on social connection for our physical and emotional well-being. Welcome to Mind and Life. I'm Wendy Hasenkamp. Today I'm speaking with social psychologist and contemplative researcher Paul Condon. Paul has been at the forefront of efforts to integrate psychological theory with the Buddhist contemplative tradition. And specifically, he looks at meditation through the lens of attachment theory. This theory has come up in a few other episodes, and Paul gives a great overview here, but it's basically about how relationships and experiences in our early childhood set up the way we interact with others and the world later in life. But also, as we'll hear, it's about how that can change. In our conversation today, we dive deep into the ways that specific kinds of meditation practice, which Paul and others call relational practice, can help us develop our natural inner capacities for care and compassion, and actually change our attachment patterning. There's a lot of nuance here, and I don't want to say too much up front because Paul gets into all this in the episode, but suffice to say, I've found these kinds of practices tremendously powerful in my own life. And I think both the experience of doing them and the conceptual shift involved, which emphasizes relationality, can be transformational. Paul and I also chat about some seminal research he's done on measuring compassion in the real world and how meditation can increase compassionate and prosocial behavior. We've included links in the show notes to this research and also to Paul leading some of these kinds of relational meditations that he talks about, as well as some of his beautiful and accessible essays on the topic. So definitely check those out if this is an area of interest for you. Paul is a longtime friend and colleague, and we've also been so happy to support his research through Mind and Life grants over the years, so I've been lucky enough to follow his work as his ideas have evolved. And I feel like he's really breaking new ground with the kind of synthesis that he's bringing around these concepts of attachment and relationship and meditation. And the implications are crucial for our time. All right, I'll leave it there so we can get to the conversation. It's really my pleasure to share with you Paul Condon. I am so happy to be joined today by Paul Condon. Paul, welcome to the show and thanks for being here. Thanks, Wendy. It's great to be here with you. I would love to hear a little bit of background to start um, about how you got interested in psychology and then also in meditation and, and bringing those two together. Yeah, so I think it really began with some pivotal classes when I was an undergraduate in, in college. I had decided to major in psychology because I enjoyed that class as a high school student. Um, so I just really wanted to learn more and got excited about doing research with professors. And I don't really know why, but I just had some curiosity about Buddhism and Buddhist mm. practices. And um, I had traveled to Japan and spent some time there as a high school student. So I had that curiosity and 
there were a few courses that I took as a college student that allowed me to explore the intersections of psychology and Buddhism. Um, so in one class, personality class, the instructor gave us an assignment to write a paper about a famous person using various psychological perspectives. And so I had just read the book, The Art of Happiness by the Dalai Lama and a psychiatrist, I think it's Howard Cutler. And I really loved that book. There was there were some really interesting ideas and intersections there. So I wrote about the Dalai Lama using different um, analytical perspectives to try to determine whether or not he is self-actualized. And I... What did you determine? <laughs> I did make a logical argument that yes, in fact, he is self-actualized. Um, yeah. So that was a fun project. And then I took a class. Um, the class was called Psychology of Transcendence. Hmm. Um, but it was really looking at the idea of um, contemplative experience and transcendence through the lens of attachment theory and um, other developmental psychology perspectives. So in that class, we did meditation practice, uh, kind of like simple breathing practices and sort of just kind of um, basic concentration practices. But we also talked a lot about attachment theory and how early childhood experiences shape our experience as adults in relationality and in um, social settings and, and how we might have various kinds of sensitivities around experiences like compassion and so that was kind of my first introduction to meditation practice, actually not just thinking about Buddhism or psychology, but actually engaging in meditation practice. And so in the attachment theory perspective really struck me. I really liked that. It felt to me like of all the different ideas that I had been learning in psychology, that was a really foundational kind of like pivotal perspective that explained a lot. I think a lot of other psychology theories or perspectives are kind of one-off ideas or sort of simple findings, but attachment theory gave a very like comprehensive framework of how our experience is shaped and carries into adulthood and explains um, a lot of social interpersonal kinds of processes. And then I took, um, I don't know what it was, the university that I was at had a lot of emphasis on attachment theory. There was like multiple professors that focused on attachment theory. So then I took a seminar on attachment theory specifically. And in that course, I wrote a paper about this idea called attachment priming, which is when we call to mind simple moments of connection or feelings of care and warmth and love, even just like the idea of that in a very simple way, just for a moment, like even for 10 seconds or 30 seconds. That attachment priming procedure is sufficient to increase compassion and actions to care for others and engage in altruism and reduce biases, reduce prejudice. And that was work that was um, at the time was really being pioneered by uh, Mario Mikulinser and Phil Shaver. And so I was really excited about that work and, and wrote my paper about it. And um, then I was getting ready to graduate and go off to graduate school. So those were the ideas that were really prominent in my mind as far as like psychological research on compassion. And then there was the work by the Dalai Lama and other people who were really trying to find ways to speak about the intersection of uh, meditation, compassion, and psychology. 
That's so cool. I had no idea that your interest in attachment theory goes back to undergrad. So yeah, you've obviously done so much work bringing attachment theory uh, into contemplative world and kind of looking at that synthesis and um, writing really beautifully about it and presenting beautifully. So I'm excited to dig into those two things with you. Um, And you already mentioned the attachment priming, which will certainly come into play. But maybe first, before we get into attachment theory, Mm -hmm. uh, one of the first things I would love to hear you discuss and and explain for the audience is your first study on meditation, or at least the first one I was aware of, um, that really brought it into kind of real world behavior. And I think at that time, that was such a seminal study because so much of the work around meditation and research had been done in lab settings and looking at, you know, brain studies or physiological outputs and things like that, which are all very important. But a large question remained, of course, about like, does this matter in people's daily lives? And does this change, you know, the way people live their lives? So I feel like you really put a stake in the ground about moving the research in that direction. So can you share that study with us? Yeah. So I think that one of the strengths of social psychology in particular is really looking at behavior and how people's behaviors change as a function of different situations that they find themselves out in the world. And the only way to really measure that is to try to create some kind of situation in a relatively controlled laboratory setting and then see how people behave in those situations. And, you know, there are studies that look at things like self-report or um, sort of project yourself into a situation and imagine how you might behave. And Those serve some purpose, they help answer some questions, but they also have some biases, like there might be sorts of memory biases or or ways that people don't account for certain kinds of emotional states that could shape their behavior. Like we're not very good at predicting how we behave. So we need to create these situations. As scientists, if we wanna know how people are gonna behave in social situations, we have to put some effort in to try to create them. So. That was a collaborative project and the team, we were sitting down thinking about like, what are some ways that we could try to assess behavior where um, people are at, have the opportunity to help another. And this is a pretty common scenario. Um, we were in Boston at the time, you know, with the subway and public transportation and it's a crowded space. So it's a pretty common occurrence that you might see somebody who has a physical injury or, or physical disability walk into a space and um, the whole subway might be filled up with seats. Everybody, every seat is taken. And do some people offer their seat or not? And occasionally, sometimes nobody does. It's just everybody's kind of in their in their zone, Mm -hmm. um, kind of, you know, reading their book or phone or or whatever. So it seemed like a pretty obvious situation. We could just try to recreate that in the lab and see do people who go through some meditation training offer their seat for somebody who's in pain or, or suffering from an injury of some kind. So in that study, we had people learn either mindfulness meditation or uh, a, a kind of compassion training that was adapted from Tibetan Lojong tradition. And then they came back to the lab after eight weeks of doing practice. And they thought that they would be completing tests of various cognitive measures or attention-based measures in the laboratory at a computer. You know, the kind of typical study that a person would do at a psychology lab. And we set it up so that when they arrived, there was a waiting area in the hallway and uh, it was a public space. It wasn't 
actually private for our lab. It was a public space and there were three seats. So we set it up so that only one seat was available. The other two seats were occupied by actors. And then the one true participant could take the last seat when they arrived. And we occasionally had to do a little bit of work to really encourage them to sit. Like sometimes people <laughs> didn't want to sit. And so we oh, delay right. things a bit and like really say, oh, you can take a seat. <laughs> I think we had to throw out one data point because we couldn't get the person to sit. <laughs> so it was a funny note that we put in the publication. But um, so then they, they would take the seat. And after they were sitting for a little while, waiting for the researcher to come back, a third actor came from down the hallway using a pair of crutches and a boot on their ankle. And the actor would approach the waiting area. And um, as she arrived, she would express some pain, kind of visibly wince a little bit. And then she'd pull out her phone, lean against the wall and check the time and kind of sigh as if you know, she had to wait there for her own research study to start. And while that was happening, then one of the other actors who was sitting would use their phone to start a timer and just see what would happen. We would measure the amount of time to see if people would give up their seat or not. And um, we always set it up so that, that one true participant was sitting furthest away. So there were two actors in between the participant and the person on crutches. Okay. And um, it might seem like, you know, a fairly simple kind of scenario, but it's a very well-established phenomenon in social psychology that when there are non-responsive bystanders, the two actors who don't give up their seat, it's a situation that discourages any kind of helping behavior. It's called the bystander effect. So when we see other people around who are not giving up their seat, we might look to that as kind of a signal of how we should behave or a kind of what's sometimes called diffusion of responsibility. Like if they're not giving up their seat, I don't have to give up my seat. And that was true. We found that for people who didn't do meditation, only 15% of them gave up their seat. It was a pretty low rate of helping behavior. And then when people went through the meditation, um, it increased 50% of the people gave up their seat, which is mm -hmm. a pretty big increase. Mm -hmm. um, so we were excited. That was, that was a cool effect. And it was one of, as you said, it was one of the first studies to show that meditation could change actual behavior in a social scenario and a live social interaction. There had been some studies that had shown that meditation could change people's intentions or, or sort of values around helping behavior, but that was one of the first that showed real action to help another person who was suffering. That was a study that was, um, so it was an eight week study with a teacher, um, with Lama Willa, who was one of the guests on the podcast. Yeah. Um, she was the instructor, but we also then were able to replicate that study um, using a smartphone app. So it wasn't just dependent on hanging out with a really awesome teacher, which could <laughs> account for some effects. So, yeah, like you said, this was one of the first uh, studies to show this effect of meditation in, in real world situations. And since then, there's been quite a bit of research on uh, these kinds of outcomes from different experiences with meditation. Do you want to quickly summarize some of the, the things that have been found in terms of like pro-social behavior? And 
Yeah, there's been some really interesting results using different kinds of creative measures. So again, trying to get around um, self-report. So some people have used, uh, there's this online game called Cyberball that social psychologists have used a lot where it's just a basic, simple ball tossing game, kind of like playing catch. And um, there's a way to rig the game so that somebody gets excluded or uh, what they call ostracized from the ball toss exchange. And we know that it's painful to be socially excluded, even from this ball tossing game. That's just a sort of simple computer thing. And uh, what some researchers have shown is that meditation will increase people's feelings of empathy for the person who's being excluded. Mm. And they'll um, make some effort to try to include that person in the game more or maybe write a message to that person to express some concern or care for that person. So an actual written message that shows concern. And um, others have shown some research that meditation will increase people's willingness to express care and concern for, um, for example, for somebody who is in prison. So writing a kind of caring, optimistic message, meditation will increase people's willingness and, and sort of tone of the message that they'll write. Um, there's been some research also that's shown that people who go through meditation will pay more attention to others who are in distress or suffering using a technique called eye tracking. So they'll actually measure how a person gazes at a scene, a, a picture or a video of suffering of somebody who's in distress. And the people who meditate are more able to sustain their attention on suffering, which I think that's a really huge outcome because I think so much of uh, our challenges around compassion involve kind of shutting off our emotional response or shutting off our connection to those who are in distress. But if meditation can increase our ability to kind of stay in solidarity with other suffering through just seeing other suffering literally like pay, paying attention to it that seems like a, a huge really important outcome yeah yeah and we've shown also that meditation will uh decrease aggression so in that study we found that after people went through the mindfulness training with an app they'd come to the lab and um, participate in a, a sort of social exchange and they would receive a an insult from an actor that told them that an essay that they wrote was terrible, a waste of time. Mm. And then they had an opportunity to prepare a, a taste sample as part of a taste sample exercise and it involved pouring uh, hot sauce into a cup. And the, <laughs> the idea was that the actor would have to um, consume the hot sauce. Right. And, you know, we, we rigged the scenario so people knew that the other person didn't like hot sauce or spicy flavors and, the people who went through meditation poured less hot sauce after receiving an insult. They still experienced a negative emotion. So it wasn't that they just became passively accepting of the insult. Mm. They still experienced negative emotions around that insult, but they didn't react by pouring a high amount of hot sauce for that person to consume. So this is another classic example of a social psych test to try to measure a real world behavior of aggression.
You mentioned some of the uh, kind of barriers to compassion that, that we can experience, like just being overwhelmed, for example, uh, with the suffering of another person or, or something, and kind of shutting down. Can you share a little bit bigger picture of some of the, the common barriers um, to compassion that we face? Yeah. Um, so I think this is another area where social psychologists have put a lot of work into trying to understand what kind of situations encourage compassionate, empathic processes and behaviors in which situations um, discourage them. And I think the way the picture comes out is that we have innate capacities for care and compassion and social connection and collaboration so that when we're relatively happy and relatively at ease and come into contact with another person's distress, it's fairly easy to express care and concern and, and wish others well. It's in some way our kind of natural way of being. I think from the perspective of social psychology, evolutionary psychology, and biology, like there's a there's these innate capacities for care that are uh, our kind of natural way of being. But when we experience a lot of stress or we have um, our own difficulties with our own traumas or um, various societal conditions, those innate capacities for care become attenuated. So one common one is a kind of aversion to suffering. So we come into connection with another person's distress and suffering, and it might provoke our own internal stress or own internal pain in response to another suffering, perhaps because we don't feel that we're capable of doing anything about it. Mm. So if we don't feel like we can do anything about another suffering, we might just feel stress and sort of turn inward on our own pain in reaction to that. And it motivates a kind of uh, shutting off or avoiding connection with another suffering. One way this shows up in some research studies is, like I said, we can feel compassion and engage in helping behavior when it's a kind of one-off scenario with like another person. We feel some emotional connection with their story. But then when it's when the number of people suffering increases, the capacity for compassion gets shut down and there's a kind of motivated um, choice to shut down our emotional response. So we don't actually really feel the emotional connection to the other person. We don't feel that sense of care and compassion for them. And it's, it's sort of like we're just um, relating to others through a kind of um, less in a kind of human connection kind of way by shutting off that emotional response. Which is so interestingly kind of counterintuitive because it's, you know, more and more people, there's more and more suffering, but we experience it less. Yeah, it's like when you would expect there would be more compassion, it's ironically right. being shut off. Yeah. I think it's so interesting. Um, a lot of your work and, and what you were just saying, too, is so much of our experience of compassion can be contextual, right? And it's kind of like getting cues or it's situationally derived, and I know you've spent a lot of time thinking about how context influences our individual moment experiences. And then I'm also thinking back to your interest in attachment theory and how there's a certain kind of like vulnerability that is involved with compassion, kind of um, to be able to feel those emotions. Mm -hmm. One of the things this is bringing up for me is, is you wrote a fantastic essay for Mind and Life's Insights Project recently. And... And you open that essay um, describing an experience that you had 
in a class that you took, I think, as an undergrad where your teacher asked people to share thoughts or, or emotions that um, trouble them or that are really difficult for them and kind of plague them and write them down anonymously and then ended up sharing a, a number of them in front of the class. And turns out a lot of people had similar, you know, similar fears or similar things that were concerning them deep down and just kind of struck me that we don't normally share those fears uh, and, it, and it takes a certain amount of vulnerability and feeling of safety really in order to do that. And then, you know, that got me thinking back to your interest in, uh, in attachment theory and, and safety and, and secure base or what is called a secure base. Yeah. So uh, I'm wondering if you, if you want to weave some of that together, maybe um, explain a little bit of the, the basics of attachment theory for the audience and how that might play into our experiences of uh, compassion. Yeah. So the, exercise in the class, the professor asked us to write down the voice in our head that we wish we didn't have to hear throughout the day. And then we then turned in the, the card and then he read them aloud publicly and anonymously. And um, it was really amazing because I think what happens is we, we have these experiences of anxiety or fear or self-doubt, self-criticism. And we're so um, kind of fully wrapped up in them as we experience them as if it's who we are and uh, as if it's our own experience. And it's also a kind of uh, reason to then be disconnected from others in our social world. We experience those as kind of things that cut us off from each other. But what the exercise revealed was actually uh, the opposite, that those difficult experiences really are a thread of shared human experience. And that can be a tremendous resource for then empathy and compassion for others. Mm -hmm. And we went then quite deep into that course and trying to understand where do these threads of uh, heartbreak come from in our lives and our experience. And so attachment theory was one of the main frameworks for understanding all of that. And the basic idea of attachment theory is that as infants, we come into the world, into our lives with a kind of preparedness for relationality. We come with the expectation of being in connection to a caregiver and um, infants will in, engage in, in behaviors and strategies to try to maintain proximity to a resource for care because their lives are utterly dependent on receiving care. And it's not just physical resources like food or physical safety, but also um, kind of emotional nurturance. Research has shown that that's uh, a kind of fundamental need or expectation that supports the development of humans. And um, so for better or worse, you know, we experience care that is more sensitive or uh, insensitive based on our experience with our um, early caregivers. And um, interestingly, there's some research that suggests that even the most attuned empathic caregiver is only attuned with their infant about 50% of the time. Oh, wow. So that's even the most empathic caring figure. Um, so what that suggests is that all of us, um, whether we sort of classify ourselves as secure, which means we we kind of come to trust and expect that care is available for us, 
or insecure, it means that we have some doubt or distrust around the source of care. Regardless of that, that sort of primary orientation that we have, all of us have some elements of insecurity. We all have some trace or some sort of like inner experience of insecurity that gets laid down in our bodies and our minds throughout our life. And we don't just develop experiences of security or insecurity with one caregiver. We, we develop those experiences across our life throughout a whole network of relationships. And those experiences in relationship then shape our sense of ourself and our sense of the world and our, our expectations of what future relationships will be like. So we, we sort of develop this sense of identity and a sense of ourselves in connection with the wider social world. And those early experiences then filter how we see future moments of relationship and connection. So even if we've had really relatively secure experience, we might still have some uh, sense of insecurity that gets kind of triggered or um, raised up for us as we're moving about our world. And we might have some feelings of insecurity that get triggered in certain kinds of relationships, um, but other kinds of relationships feel more secure. And also, even if we're sort of primarily insecure, we might have had moments of security with various kinds of people throughout our lives. And we can develop moments of security, not just with parents, but also with friends, with teachers, with uh, coaches, mentors, even within like a kind of organization. There's research on attachment and like or organizations or school systems that hmm. uh, a kind of school system or organizational or work-based place can foster a sense of security or insecurity in people. So what this uh, sort of suggests is that all of us have potential resources that we can find in our life that might help us to experience a sense of security, even if the sort of larger narrative or, or experience of our life in relationships has been more challenging or potentially um, traumatic. There are ways in which we can uh, recover or resource ourselves to experience more security. Yeah, I love that. And and I feel like this line of work um, really just lifts up our capacity for change. And I, I think for a while, correct me if I'm wrong, but in the in this field, it was kind of considered that you develop this attachment style as an infant. And that's basically how you live your life. <laughs> like most of psychology, I think kind of uh, was under that umbrella that you develop a certain personality, you know, through adolescence, and then it's fairly fixed. And of course, in the last several decades, that's completely been overturned. And we're learning more and more about our capacity for change and growth, you know, throughout the lifespan. So I always um, take such comfort in that in, in relation to these patterns that that have been laid down early in life that that they can be changed into. Is it called earned secure? I've heard that term before. Yeah, earned security. Yeah, I think Part of the reason why attachment theory was so innovative when it was first introduced is that it provided some pretty well worked out theory and um, then eventually some empirical data that showed that our attachment experiences do persist from early childhood then through adulthood. And then that's one reason why that theory has so much explanatory power. Mm -hmm. um, but then yes, at the same time, that doesn't mean that we're locked in to certain patterns. 
And that's also where there's some real beauty with the emergence of like contemplative theory and practice with attachment theory that our attachment patterns can change and we can develop a, a sense of earned security or, or sort of like building our own secure base or discovering our own secure base in a way as adults. I have one question before we jump into the contemplative angle. Mm -hmm. This is just a really um, basic question that I have never even thought about until just this conversation. But is there research showing a relationship between attachment style and compassionate behavior or tendencies in the world? Has that research ever been done? Yeah, yeah, there is. Um, and that's also where the attachment priming research, I think, was inspired from recognizing that there's some research that shows that um, people who have a kind of secure orientation are more likely to express um, curiosity about their peers, um, a kind of support for empathy and uh, collaboration. Um, as you said, that uh, compassion might involve a little bit of vulnerability of being in social connection and around other people's emotions. So security involving that uh, willingness to be in connection with another person is important. And so research has shown that. And then I think that was also some of the inspiration for that idea. Well, if we can help people to temporarily experience security, it might increase compassion. And so then that attachment priming literature showed that. So one of the things that I find really interesting and, and um, sometimes not discussed a lot in relation to attachment theory is um, a, a kind of definition of security mm. is it's not that any of us are fully in a hundred percent secure in that we're just like perfectly emotionally stable and uh, comfortable and confident all the time. Uh, but rather uh, one way of defining security is um, the ability to navigate between stages of autonomy and relationality with some ease and comfort. So there's comfort in sort of relying on social connection and support from others, but then also comfort in being autonomous and able to explore the world on one's own, sort of like branching out from the secure base and venturing into the world, but also then when needed, coming back to the secure base for support and emotional connection. So again, it's not that any of us has it all totally worked out or 100% independent, but there's kind of, yeah, ability to explore and navigate and reconnect with resources. That's interesting. And is it right to say, just as you were saying that, it made me think about, you know, if you're moving away and kind of being autonomous and independent, if you go too far in that direction, it feels more like the avoidant uh, attachment style or what that's one of the insecure categories um, where, you know, you kind of avoid those close connections. Whereas if you're too far on the side of of sticking with that secure base, that that can be more the anxious type um, where you're you're always looking for that and you're you don't trust that it's going to be there. So that's interesting to think about security being almost a midway or an ability to navigate between those two poles. Yeah, it's sort of like, um, it doesn't mean that we don't have those emotions or those experiences that might be like a kind of avoidance or anxiousness, but um, when those emotions occur, there's not as much um, 
maybe it's not as much fear around them. There's more comfortability to express different kinds of emotions with the trust that it will be met with support and care. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a classic understanding of the secure base is that the the difficult emotions will be met with sensitivity and kind of an appropriate response for the situation. jump into your beautiful work, bringing all of these ideas of of attachment theory into the contemplative space or kind of weaving those together. Mm -hmm. So it might be interesting to start with, I've heard you talk about kind of the picture of meditation as it's shown up in Western industrialized societies in a more individualistic frame than maybe it was originally developed. So maybe we could start there. Mm -hmm. So in our systems of education and, and learning, you know, especially in Western cultures and societies, we tend to think of learning things as like my own effort, my own discipline to really put in a lot of effort and maintain some kind of connection to it. And then with perseverance and grit, I will improve in whatever mm-hmm. skill or domain I'm trying to get better at. And that mentality, I think probably many of us bring into a meditation practice And this was the case for me that like when I first started meditating, it felt successful to me when I was like using my app on my phone and the number of days of maintaining the practice consecutively increased and like the number of hours increased. And I was like, Mm. okay, the meditation is getting better and stronger. Like that, that's how I felt was a sign of success and not to dismiss any of that, but um, it's a kind of, I think a limited understanding or perspective on meditation. And also it's, from the perspective of people in in Buddhist studies and history, like I'm thinking of David McMahon, who wrote a really amazing book, The Making of Buddhist Modernism. This is a kind of uh, new way of thinking about meditation that we we take it up as an individual practice through our own effort and learn it maybe through a book or some kind of app just on our own. Quite different from contemplative cultures of the past where the way that people would learn meditation is through relationship to a community or to a teacher or to a lineage of spiritual ancestors who embodied the possibility of deep contemplative insight and experience. So yeah, through this lens of the kind of individualistic framework, we miss out on that deep sense of connection to a tradition or to a community of practitioners. Yeah, and that also, I think, helps shed light on how meditation has been so much in the self-help domain also in the West, uh, just like you described, kind of, I'm going to do this, my individual self for my benefit, and it misses uh, potentially larger Mm -hmm. societal implications and relational implications. Well, it might also, um, there's an interesting thread of connection there to the attachment work, because if we do have a kind of avoidant orientation, meaning we, we don't want to rely so much on other people for support and encouragement, we might be attracted to meditation for that very reason as a kind of self-help 
project to, um, through our own effort, kind of increase our well-being. And not that any of that's a bad thing. It's just it may sort of restrict the possibilities. Right. And isn't there even some research showing that certain in certain situations, meditation can make you more self-focused or something like that? Yeah, yeah. There is some research on that that shows that um, if we approach meditation through a kind of mindset of individualism, then doing the very practice can actually make us more selfish or less helpful when there's like requests for help. Um, it can make us less likely to experience guilt, which is an important emotion in terms of social repair and social connection. It can make people think more highly of themselves, <laughs> which is ironically not what contemplative traditions are trying to promote. So yeah, that's that's some important research coming also out of social psychology. Yeah. Okay, so that kind of brings us to what you've talked a lot about in terms of a relational starting point um, of meditation and how we kind of need to reclaim that or, or move towards that, at least in, in Western societies. So can you unpack uh, what, what you mean by that? Yeah, and so this is really coming out of collaboration with John McCransky, who's a professor of Buddhist studies and has done a lot of work to try to translate and make accessible more relational practices. What we mean by relational practice is very much like the secure base concept or the attachment theory idea, experiencing ourselves within a, a kind of space of warmth and care and support that's not just generated on our own, but that's coming from a kind of ecology of connection, like a social ecology of connection with others. And so from various contemplative cultures and traditions, we can see examples of this, like calling to mind maybe uh, an enlightened figure like the Buddha for Buddhists or, or within Christianity calling to mind the presence of God or a figure like Jesus or Mary. These are like a kind of relational connection that supports the development of contemplative experience and qualities like compassion and wisdom. Um, or calling to mind connection with uh, one's community of other practitioners or a lineage of teachers, other people who have um, really dedicated their lives to practice and calling them to mind as a way of supporting one's own process then with engaging in meditation practice. So this relational starting point or um, sometimes referred to as a relational mindset for meditation seems to be kind of absent within a lot of the discourse or kind of secularization around meditation in the Western setting. Um, and so attachment theory and also other perspectives from throughout social psychology and developmental psychology suggests like, hey, this is really important. We, we are really dependent on social connection for our physical well-being and emotional well-being. Like this is a, a natural thing that we need. And that became even more apparent for us as a result of the pandemic. Like when we're cut off from people, it causes a lot of suffering. We need social connection. So yeah, there's a, a sort of obvious and natural connection there between these various theories and psychology and the, the idea of a relational field of support for meditation practice. Yeah, I think that's so interesting too. You brought up secularization, which is a huge avenue through which meditation has become popularized in the West was to kind of 
remove the religious elements so that it would be, you know, more um, acceptable across different faiths or, you know, not tied to a certain uh, religious belief system, which has been brilliant in many ways. But I think what you're pointing out is there's also this then maybe inadvertent loss of some of the relational experience, I guess, that was embedded within the religious context. So that's really interesting to think about. And John McCransky, as you say, has done a beautiful work shining a light on that and and then finding ways to to recreate that in a secular way for folks in the West and of all faiths or no faith. So um, can you describe a little bit about how the process works um, in these practices? Yeah. So um, in terms of like trying to translate this into a, a setting where it's not a everyone's in the same religious identity or same religious framework, how can we um, help people connect? Um, I really like this concept that I think Brooke Lavelle wrote about distinguishing between an open secular context and a closed secular context. So in a closed secular context, there's no discussion of religion or spirituality. And there's a kind of assumption that science is the agreed upon framework that everybody can just connect with and engage in. And that becomes the platform for conversation and then also meditation practice. Mm. And in open secular context, there's not any one particular perspective or framework that is prioritized, but rather people can be invited to connect with the meditation practices by drawing upon resources from their life or from their worldview or their culture or their lineage and ancestors as a way to inform engagement with meditation practice. So that feels like a really important and valuable kind of concept for just understanding the different spaces that frame contemplative practice and dialogue around practice. And the way that then we try to engage this relational mindset with meditation is by inviting people to populate a field of care or a, a kind of caring moment or benefactor experience by calling to mind something that is meaningful to them in some way. And um, always try to give people a lot of different options for how to do that. So it could be a simple caring moment, like a memory of being with uh, somebody who that memory helps you just feel happy, helps you feel at ease or calm in some way. And it's, of course, not maybe like a perfect relationship because, no, again, no one person is perfect, but there might be simple moments that feel happy to recall, like maybe a moment as a child with a grandparent or with a friend or with a teacher or coach or just maybe somebody who provided you some encouragement in some way. And that becomes uh, the memory of that experience becomes the kind of basis for experiencing ourselves as an object of care. And we learn to experience what it's like to receive care or to feel care. And that can help evoke then our own inner capacity for qualities like care and joy and ease. But there are also many other ways to do that practice. So it could also involve a spiritual benefactor of some kind. If a person has connection to a particular worldview or tradition, they could be invited to call to mind that tradition. 
And you can do this. You could do that in a secular space where a person is just being invited to connect with something that's already meaningful to them. Could be a lineage of ancestors calling to mind their presence and bringing them into the room. It could also be a benefactor or person maybe who we've never met, but their writing or their work is meaningful for some reason. Like that book, The Art of Happiness, for me, that was like a benefactor book mm. when I was in college and it, it really inspired me. Um, so it continues to serve that. You're just thinking about that book as kind of benefactor experience. So when we teach these practices, these relational mindset or the relational starting point for practice, a lot of the work is trying to help people in a way recover some memories that they might not have paid much attention to or thought much about, but are actually really valuable and can be very helpful for experiencing care and warmth. I was going to ask, yeah, what about folks, you know, who had very difficult childhoods or, or life experiences and maybe don't have belief systems or figures that they can bring to mind. Yep. Does that come up in your experience of people who really struggle to find those examples? Yeah, I think it's, it's quite common. Mm. So it could also be a moment with a pet. An animal can be a really nice way for people to do the practice, like being with a dog or cat or also a place in nature. Mm. or a place that feels welcome. It doesn't necessarily have to be outside, but a memory of being in a particular place that feels safe and encouraging and welcoming where we just feel at ease. And one of the neat connections with cognitive science here is that uh, when we recall various experiences, we're not just thinking about them in an abstract way. So I'm thinking of um, like Larry Barcelo's work on grounded cognition. When we call to mind memories or experiences, we're simulating them across a, a sort of full embodied sensory experience that draws upon like the visual system in the brain and the sort of kinesthetic systems like body movement, uh, taste, touch, physical movement, sounds, and so forth. So when we think about something, a memory from the past, we're, we're reenacting it throughout the brain and body as, as if it's happening now. Like For example, even if we think of somebody who's maybe passed away, it might be at first painful to think about them. Maybe we haven't thought about them because it causes some sadness or grief, but we can actually, through a meditation like this, uh, from that perspective of grounded cognition, we're reenacting in our bodies what it felt like to be in their presence. So we can literally like experience their presence through ourselves and experience the warmth and care. So yeah, I find there's a lot of like really kind of inspiring and neat connections that come from bringing science into the dialogue with meditation practice in this way. So I love that emphasis that it kind of doesn't matter what 
experience or memory you're you're drawing on. The point is to kind of reactivate that experience in the present moment in your body mind system, right? So yep. I think I heard you also give examples of like even activities that that might feel very calming or grounding to you, like playing music or writing or something like that. So it's really broad. I love the creativity that you can bring into the kinds of things you can use to to focus on. So then you you bring these up and steep in them, I guess, or just kind of like hang out in that emotional experience. And, and then what do you do with that? Yeah, so use the memory or the imagery to help connect with the, the kind of emotional experience of care or warmth or kind of noticing the positive qualities that come with that memory. And then the practice is to then um, turn our attention to those qualities and let them help us relax into them more and more. So in a way, it's not trying to create something new, but those memories are helping us to access something that's already present. So from an evolutionary social psychology or, or sort of biological point of view, we have some neural architecture and systems for care that are present. And these memories are actually helping to, I guess you could say they're helping to activate those processes. Mm-hmm. And then we're learning to let them do their work, I guess is a way to put it. Let those, let those experiences and qualities help us relax and settle down into a space of warmth and ease and care. And then that can be the kind of inner quality that's not dependent on something external. It's our sort of inner capacity that can inform how we show up for others. Mm. There's one one story um, which I've written about and shared, but I think helps illustrate this, an important aspect of this. So during COVID, my daughter was nine months old or something, fairly young, and it was a difficult time. And there was a pond in the neighborhood where I live and we would go to the pond and it was very just, um, it was very helpful and nourishing. Like when we showed up at the pond, she really enjoyed it. And it helped me feel more at ease. And it was sort of like a space for us where we kind of just developed a bond, I think, over being at the pond. And uh, we had a big fire then that came through our town that destroyed a lot of buildings and homes and a lot of the natural landscape. And that that space was no longer accessible for a while. So we couldn't go back to the pond. Mm. So it was kind of difficult. But then I used that as a like a benefactor place and a benefactor memory for meditation. And it was like the experience of it became stronger, even though I was not able to go there. Something about losing it, but then recovering it through meditation made it even stronger. It wasn't dependent on the actual space. It was pointing to a kind of inner capacity within our own being that we could we could access like with some immediacy and freshness here in the present moment. I love that. It really speaks to the power of our imagination and, and like you were saying, the capacity of our minds to simulate and make something real um, just by thinking about it. And then I guess the idea with this practice is, you know, repeatedly then over time, you start to repattern or or kind of shift the balance more into these qualities that come up from re-experiencing mm-hmm. these things. Is that the idea? 
Yeah, I think, you know, in terms of relating it back to attachment theory, when we do the practice at first, it might be that the mind has um, some various reactions or even maybe some uh, difficult emotions or some distrust. So we might feel a little bit of that happiness or ease or care, but then at the same time feel some reactivity to it, some distrust, or it might involve some vulnerability, like that card exercise from the classroom. It just can trigger up our emotional insecurities. But if we keep doing the practice and explore doing it with uh, different kinds of benefactors or different kinds of caring moments, I think what can happen is the mind begins to learn that the ability to experience care and qualities like warmth and ease and joy are not dependent on the content of the field of care practice. Like the specific content is not actually the main point. The main point is the content is helping us to access something from within that is more trustworthy or more fully who we are and that can then become the basis for deepening and contemplative practice and then can then help sustain and inform our efforts to uh, care for others. So in that way, it's, it's not just for ourselves, but it becomes a practice that supports our efforts for others as well. Yeah, I just want to emphasize that point because I think it's really important and powerful. You know, I think so often we have this tendency to experience the world like the good feelings that I have, if and when I have them, are because of what's happening out there, you know, the way people are treating me or, you know, the situations that arise. And that's what is the source of my good feelings or or bad feelings. But I think this really, I know I've experienced this myself in doing these kind of practices, really shifts our ability to see that, like you said, it's a subtle thing, but it's like, oh no, that's actually generated inside me. And in a way, it is related to the care that I have received in all of these ways that are sometimes very hard to see, but the more you practice, maybe the more you see it. So I'm kind of curious for you personally, how um, engaging in these practices has changed you, if you have examples of things in your life that that feel different. Yeah, I think probably one of the most powerful things is it can help lead to a, a kind of basic, people sometimes describe it as like a feeling of just basic okayness. Mm. Like what you were describing, like we can recognize that our feelings of warmth and care and joy and ease are not depending on something external, but are helping us to access and sort of discover um, resources for all those positive qualities right from within that that's actually like the more fundamental resource for our happiness and well-being. It's just kind of like our, in a way, like our inner experience and I think through doing the practice repeatedly, one of my favorite things about it is we start to experience care in all sorts of ways that might not feel obvious at first, even just like the idea of the breath as a kind of benefactor or the body as a benefactor. So sometimes the mind just gets kind of restless or caught up in the whirlwind of activity of our days. And then you know, you might come to the end of the day and have a chance to just take a breath and relax and settle into the body. And that's a kind of moment of care that we're experiencing. So it's not coming from an external benefactor in that case, but it's just the physical being of the body is a kind of benefactor experience. 
And we might start to notice care in all aspects of our lives that maybe we might at one point just dismissed or thought as not particularly important or meaningful. But then when we recover it in our mind, it becomes much more meaningful. It's like, okay, that's now a resource that I have that really can support this meditation practice. Even like simple moments of kind of laughing with friends or with uh, sometimes in the classroom, I'm teaching funny things will happen. Like it was shortly after we came back to the classroom after COVID and I was running late to class one day and I ate a bagel really fast before class. (laughs) And then I went to class and I was coughing. (laughs) I had my mask on and I just, I apologized to them. I told them it's not COVID. It's just because I ate my bagel really fast (laughs) and everybody started laughing. And it was like, in that moment, I could feel the boundary or the sort of like iciness between a professor and students just fell away for a moment. It's mm. just we're there together laughing. So like, you know, maybe we don't pay much attention to those experiences, like they might not mean much. But when we do these meditation practices, we we start to see those moments through a different light and feel like kind of grateful for them or or sort of like those become more valuable than other ways that we're conditioned to think about our world and other goals that we might be pursuing that actually like social connection and opportunities for social connection can be found in just mundane experiences that are really meaningful. Mm. Yeah. So I'm thinking about, um, I'm curious what you see as the uh, applicability or value of these kind of practices in a larger scale, uh, thinking about challenges we face as a society. So just any reflections on that would be great. Yeah, I think that, so again, going back to attachment theory, one thing that is made possible by a feeling of security and feeling of safety is a kind of willingness to venture out into the world with more curiosity, with more courage, with more empathy. So I think in terms of the current challenges that we face in the world, doing a practice like this could provide a greater um, kind of inner resource to have the willingness to see suffering more clearly and to be in relationship with the suffering in the world um, without getting burned out, without getting so emotionally reactive to it. So that then our our potential ways of engaging with the world are coming from a, a space of more ease and well-being and even joy to be then in connection with others, not ignoring suffering, but um, being in, in greater touch with suffering, both with our own difficult experiences and then also with the difficult experiences that others are going through. So I think in terms of social challenges and challenges of climate change, you know, there's some heavy emotions that come with learning about all of these things in the history of our country and our world. And then the future, there's a lot of difficult emotions that might get triggered by that. So having practices that provide us with a sense of a secure base to come back to when we're experiencing difficult emotions can then help us be sustained in doing that, that work. Well, Paul, this has been so great. Um, Is there anything that you wanted to share or touch on that we haven't talked about? Well, I just wanted to say that, um, you know, I think Mind and Life has really been a great support for me and and my journey in all of this. And so I, I really see Mind and Life as a kind of benefactor field of care. So 
Thanks so much for all the work that you and, and the organization is doing. Oh, that's great to hear. Well, I think that your particular synthesis and direction is so powerful and needed. So thank you for all the work that you're doing. And, and thanks for taking the time to chat with us today. Thank you, Wendy. This episode was edited and produced by me and Phil Walker. And music on the show is from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal. Show notes and resources for this and other episodes can be found at podcast.mindandlife.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. And if something in this conversation sparked insight for you, let us know. You can send an email or voice memo to podcast at mindandlife.org. Mind and Life is a production of the Mind and Life Institute. Visit us at mindandlife.org where you can learn more about how we bridge science and contemplative wisdom to foster insight and inspire action towards flourishing. If you value these conversations, please consider supporting the show. You can make a donation at mindandlife.org under support. Any amount is so appreciated and it really helps us create this show. Thank you for listening. <laughs>